listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's RC podcast covering digital cinematography. This week we'll be covering the reasons why I get tweets from Jason in the emergency room and the baby delivery room, as well as, uh, I guess we might call this our road audio uh, podcast. Anyway, there's a lot more about this and other stuff to do with camera tech here on the um, uh, RC podcast, where we see our role as being that of mining the news, sort of filtering the blogs, and yes, of course, going down some serious rat holes. This is the camera tech that Jason and I kind of discuss, obsess about, argue about, and even try and occasionally work out. Uh, and obviously, Jason, you are here, but not quite in the same room with me today, because uh, we're doing this from respective, uh, it's like a dawn recording, really. Respective abodes, yes, yes, indeed. Sorry, schedule clashing, but at least we're in the same country, and uh, for the time being, anyway. Well, at least for a day, yes. I'm about to uh, head interstate, and you're about to head overseas, but... yeah. Yes, please explain what I was referring to when I said I was getting emails saying, I'm in the emergency room, I'm in the, the delivery room of the hospital. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, can't speak now. I'm in ICU. And I was like, what? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I can't really speak about the project too much yet at the moment, but just been doing something um, in hospitals for the last uh, week or so, and uh, should be really, it's been really rewarding, and it's been one, as I've sort of probably tweeted one of those... Um, uh, life leveling kind of um, count your blessings sort of projects where you, yeah, you're in sort of ICU and children's chemo and um, uh, delivery rooms and all that sort of stuff. So you get a little, yeah, it's been a bit grounding, shall we say, but a good, very rewarding project and uh, hopefully should be a nice um, sort of uh, a lovely project at the end of the day. And I'll know more when I have more to share, I guess, when we know more about it. Yes. But, uh, yeah, it's been been really, really good. And, obviously, this is the kind of stuff you can't write, you can't script, you can't wardrobe, you can't storyboard. It's uh, um, just a portrait piece on, on, on nursing. And, yeah, so should be good. No one on their deathbed ever said, I wish I spent more time in airports. <laughs> or podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> um, excellent, excellent. We've done both. We've done a lot. Um, mm. <laughs> we've done both at the same time, actually. Um, yes, True. brilliant. All right. Well, uh, let's get to uh, to this week's show. And um, actually, we have a uh, a little interview coming up later in the show, which is a it's not really an outtake. It's just a bit that I was holding back in the process of doing my interviews at Sony. And I actually visited Sony while they were working on um, Spider-Man. We got an enormous amount of material and uh, I just started to geek out at one point with the guys over uh, stereo and, and how they were working with the stereo epic footage. Now, uh, some of that um, we've actually put into a podcast, uh, sorry, a, a written story, which is the first time we've sort of done an RC written story, but this is the only way that it kind of worked. Um, if you were to uh, wander over to fxguide.com, you would see that there's a story there on the uh, shooting diary of Spider-Man. So this is, of course, the first epic film ever done in the sense that it didn't come out first, but it was started first. And uh, Michael, who we've had on the show from Light Iron, uh, had kept a diary kind of thing of what happened in the sort of two years uh, uh, sort of since the fall of 2010 when they first started doing this and as I mentioned in a, another podcast um, the remarkable thing that he mentions in that story is just that this was a camera that 
really wasn't sort of, it was like a prototype stage, the EPIC. It, the MX sensor itself was only like nine months old. Um, there really weren't many of these cameras even sort of you could pick up, yet alone sort of point to having actually done anything. They wanted to do this whole thing in 4K stereo. But the thing that makes it really remarkable, if you just think about it from this point of view, is that when they were deciding to pick EPIC, this was a $200 million Sony picture mm. <laughs> so uh say what yeah. you like about sony but sony committing to um red on this picture was just a really uh you know terrific kind of uh, move by them and the of course the dp anyway, so that diary that runs through um uh the whole sort of john testing the camera the rigs that came up and you know the first time they got images out includes a whole lot of behind the scenes photo that michael himself took like on his iphone or whatever um of them standing around with jim or standing around on you know looking at test charts and stuff it's a pretty interesting little story and then there's that interview um or part of it uh that i've got um with uh, jerome shen talking about shooting with the epic and how he kind of put stuff together he's the vfx supervisor from the film so uh, we just thought we'd share some of that stuff with you guys because i think it is really really interesting and it's a kind of great perspective on the um on that process of testing our cameras have you ever been yeah in a- it was obviously a pretty awesome project for those guys with something you know really working out <laughs> stereo but also with you know completely untested cameras and beta firmware and yeah they were you know kind of improving the cameras as they as they went and as they shot i mean have you ever been on um that situation with new tech where you're just trying to commit it's a kind of a nerve-wracking thing isn't it? it's like this i want to use mm. it because it'd be awesome but if i use it and it doesn't work it's less than awesome I tried to just only do that with peripheral stuff whereby if it doesn't work, I just throw it away and just move on and we have a hardwire or a sort of, you know, a, an alternative version for it. Camera gear doesn't go down quite so well on a on a, on a commercial, say, where, um, uh, you know, if uh, something stops working, then all of a sudden everything stops working. And I, mean, I guess it's the same deal with, with a major feature film. <laughs> but um, you don't always have um, every representative or CEO of that same camera company and every tech involved in designing it standing there right behind you to help you with five other backup cameras. So, um, no, I try to avoid those situations on a TVC where clients can, uh, you know, come over and kick my ass. So, well, yeah, 100 not, shoot not, days. Not, 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 not good. Before that, it was film, and that never broke down. <laughs> <laughs> That's just so not okay. true. I repeat, hardly ever broke down. <laughs> Virtually almost all the time, you didn't know it had broken down until it was too late, I think is that, what you were trying that, to say. That's true. There was all those other times, which is another reason why I'm happy to move on to bits and bites. But um, I, I have another... I mean, it's going to make the show long-ish, but I have another interview, whether we slip this in or not, um, with um, Brian Valente from Red Rock Micro. I had a good chat with him last week because we didn't really have a good chance to catch up with him at NAB as we did in previous shows. Um, and I chatted to him about the new, uh, his new Ultra Cages, new gear, and where the hell are those frickin' micro-remote focus systems and um, how he deals with uh, having to have the issues with dealing with Apple to try and get that system out and uh, kind of timely conversation, I guess, on copycats and people you know, ripping off his designs. Absolutely. And now, the RC News. There was a really good, I think it was really good, video put out by Red uh, on the latest firmware update. And I would yeah, love to I see love more these of videos. these. This guy is cool. I can't remember who's presenting, but man, he's, you know, get that guy an agent. 
<laughs> it's, really, it's a really good, they're really good uh, couple of uh, promos. Uh, one is for um, saving looks to camera, which we can talk about. But the other one is for, I think, a really good uh, upgrade for Epic uh, um, firmware 3.3. I haven't had a chance to put it on my camera yet because I've been shooting <laughs> 5D Mark III. But um, I have. Uh, have you had a chance, no doubt, Mike, to have a bit of a play with I it? Had it I had a, had a shit on the weekend and uh, it worked really well. Uh, the firmware has some interesting stuff, including uh, the ability to tap on stuff um, on the side of the screen. So the touchscreen actually sort of has new hotspots. That's uh, a really good. Uh, that's a really good idea. That they're not there; they're hidden, really, in them. And you can assignable, yeah. and they can you can label them, or they use the labels of their functions. So yeah, clip, yeah. quick hotkeys on screen. Actually, I think it is really. Uh, the case i like shooting i mean i do a lot more studio work i think than than location work but i love shooting with that screen and i love you know punching stuff up on it mm. and uh, and using it and um yeah no it's really good and uh, sdi and hdmi together which you know is one of those things that some other cameras come with it just working already but uh, <laughs> in this particular camera system it's uh, a joy uh, the one i thought the one the one i thought you would make the wisecrack over is audio on playback people have been going <laughs> Really? Again, that's that's again. a new feature? <laughs> that's an upgrade. <laughs> um, it, but is, it is good. To give them their due, I really think the uh, improvements to the firmware are all re- have been really substantial and good, and I certainly have applauded them. Yeah, there's and, stuff that um, should be there, which is now on, which is terrific, but there's other new things. Uh, just to get to the audio menus, you can hit all the audio levels, you, the mic levels, you just hit the little, hit the, uh, tap the... Um, the bar graphs down the bottom right, and you it brings up the input menus, input levels, which is really nice. That's so, been there for a while. Lots of other few little things here and there, but um, those are the major, those are the major ones, particularly those uh, the quick keys. And having SDI and HDMI out is really cool, just to be able to feed it to another monitor, and also then have HDMI out free now, which I want with my new video transmitter. How's that working? It's working really well. It's working yeah. really well. It's, uh, you know, I mean, it's always very tricky when you're a manufacturer and you start quoting transmission <laughs> transmission distances. It's always a bit of a slippery slope. But um, I'm getting at least, you know, 150, a couple of hundred feet. Um, it does depend definitely whether you've got line of sight or whether you're going through walls and things. But it's, you know, it's an improvement on everything I've, I've used before and zero latency, like literally half a frame or something, which is really critical when you're on set and you're feeding video and audio on separate pathways, i.e. Video Village or right, agency yep. or client are usually got context, so they've got little belt packs. Yep. Um, so you don't have to dick around with monitor volume. Um and the um, video is coming from, you know, from, from camera side. So there's often, if you have any delay in the video, everyone goes, it's out of sync. Have you actually, what, what model is this? Or have you said what? Uh, the Paralynx Arrow, which I've sort of mentioned before and it's come up numerous times and will again because I love it. Now, um, is, this the, is this the you're off the market good? Or is this like I'm still looking for a solution to this, but this is the best I've found so far? Um, look, this is a... Um, uh, this is the best solution so far, I think, and particularly for the money. It's um, it's one of those very How small, light, lightweight solution. It's about a grand. Right. Um, anything comparable in terms of uh, transmission distance and latency is in the multiple four, three, four, six, whatever, and then upwards to the sky's the limit, twenty five thousand dollars. 
if you want to go really long distances. But mm. um, for what this is, for $1,000, for it's like ultralight, like literally, you know, there's no point bolting it and bracketing this thing. The tiniest little Velcro dot will hold this, this, this stuff onto your camera. It's very, very small and runs off sort of USB kind of voltage. So it's um, it is a very lightweight, lightweight. You can almost say it's domestic in its kind of build, but um, it's kind of like when the guts of it are so small and simple and light, it would seem weird, and it would sort of you know you'd start to get into annoying things with with RF and um, knocking down your signal if you start putting this stuff in a really bulky, big, massive box. So yes. it kind of you know defeats the purpose. So you know they kept it light and small and cheap and affordable and. And it's just the right price point. If you want to have big, something the size of a freaking house brick that's a little bit more bulletproof, that, that weighs 500 times, you know, 500 times the weight and uh, it's all V-locks and adds another two kilos to your camera, then great, spend three or four grand. But, you know, I think for... But, but, but as a solution for, you know, DSLRs or for, um, you know, for Epic, which is nice and small, last thing you want to do is bolt on... A video transmitter on the back of the thing, which is the same size as the camera you're bolting it onto. So, it's um, it's great. I mean, you know, video transmitters, regardless of what they are, regardless of whether you're paying, you know, five grand or five hundred bucks, they are they are. I'm not going to say they're a pain, but you know, they are a twitchy thing. Signal comes and goes, and you know, it's never going to be a replacement for a piece of. Um, you know, copper in a roll. Actually, it's funny so, you say that because we had this small HD monitor and we were using it on a shoot um, that I was talent on, effectively. They were shooting me and I, it kept on mucking up and I was talking to Jim who works for me and I was like, this thing, and he's like, oh, you know, we have to replace the firmware. And so I walked back later after the shoot. I was like, have you updated the firmware on the on the camera? Because I thought we were running the latest firmware and he's like, oh, not on the camera, on the monitor. And I was like, you update the firmware on the monitor? <laughs> <laughs> Everything. <laughs> Everything yeah. might get firmware. It's like, Freaking yeah. firmware, I tell you. I know. It's like, but I don't remember a time when I had to update firmwares on little monitors that yeah, were... monitors, transmitters, phones, <laughs> cameras. I'd DSLRs. like to update the firmware on my, on my, um, on my SD card. Anyway, um, so... <laughs> yeah. We did and it worked fine, but um, yes. Anyway, so... Um, that is an excellent upgrade from from Red. Uh, another one, and it's a good video. This is, I guess, this is a process you've been able to do for a little while. But uh, the ability to save looks um, uh, from from Red Cine X to camera, and it was a good little sort of workaround of grabbing a clip, putting it into Red Cine X, playing with it, saving a look, putting it, saving that look back onto the. Stop me if I'm wrong here, Mike. Stop saving it back onto the SSD card, put that back on the camera, and sort of you know. At, Put the LUT, I guess, output LUT on on the um, video output. Obviously, it's just still all raw. It's just metadata, but it's just a nice way of giving um, a look to... You can start lighting a bit to that look, exposing a little bit to that look, and um, your clients and, you know, everybody on set, actors for playback, everyone sort of gets that. Particularly if it's, you know, the, if that's sort of add something to the feel of the project then yeah everyone gets to sort of get into a little bit of the mood of, of what you're trying to create hey another thing is a rat hole this wasn't on the schedule but um the magic lantern has come up with a new version of the software which i just got to on friday but i haven't played with anything but one of the things i was also doing when i was shooting on the weekend was doing uh, hdrs and the new magic lantern which i only had running on the Mark II, but I believe it's coming on the Mark III or it's about to be released soon, is um, 
it's got nine brackets for an HDR. So I press the button once, it takes nine photos. Wow. I was like, so I'm going to test that and play with it. And maybe next time we're on the show, we can go through with it because Magic Lantern is a slightly moving target. Um, it's got a website now, which is good, but still uh, the guys are continuing to improve it and do stuff. So oh, It's pretty impressive. It's pretty impressive. And it works on so many cameras. It's quite impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess you can probably do HDR time-lapse as well. That was the other thing, that it does time-lapse on board. You could do nine shots and then, although you have to wait for those nine shots to be taken um, and be written to buffer and all that sort of stuff and get written onto the card. But, yeah, you could do nine, nine shots and then, yeah, you could time-lapse HDR without having to have any extra remotes. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because I think there is a definite need for some HDR time-lapse bracketing. And the reason I say that is that I nearly always are filming something like a sun coming up or a sun going down, and the exposure is always right at one end of it and not at the other. So I'd love to be able to uh, transition through the exposure range as the clip is playing. Um, I think magic oh, I don't want to do does that a, as well, doesn't it? I think you can. Well, I don't set. want to do a tone mapped HDR time no. lapse because they look ugly, <laughs> and I do want to do the other. Hey, um, let's yeah, go that to. Yeah, makes sense. It makes sense because I mean, go ahead. No, I was going to say I just want to. I'm really keen to get to the next item because I think it's huge. And uh, and but go ahead. What were you going to say? Um, no, because I, I know that it does. I hear that it does a, like a exposure ramp where you can set it from this point to this point, but you never quite know where you want to do that ramp. So if you're um, going to do, you know, if you're doing HDRs and you've got nine stops, then um, uh, hey, pick your pick your pick your exposure later. I on. imagine that nine stops would be more useful for a technical HDR than for a sort of creative HDR. Creative, I reckon you yeah. could get there a lot quicker than nine. Mm. You know, five would probably be enough of a spread to be able to handle most of the sort of things that you'd want, especially as you're probably knowing which way it's going. I mean, you could probably do it with three if you knew that the sun was sort of, or four if you knew the sun was coming up or going down because you'd set it correct for one end. You don't need to go up and and below the exposure you set, you know what I mean? Yeah. It'd be like one or the other. But um, Don't be afraid but, of the dark. I think it's probably the, the key. It's, it's, it's nice that there's, there's beauty in the low lights and set it for the high stuff and let, let, it, let it go. There's, yep. uh, it's, always, it's always darker. is always a bit more interesting than you think. And, yeah, that's one thing. It, just doing my little tests last week with my little happy snappy time-lapse tests. So. It's always more interesting than you think it is. It's certainly more interesting than it is at the time where you just want to just like, you know, stab yourself with boredom. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) I'm not someone who easily can just stare into the sunrise and go, ah, what a lovely Zen moment. I just want to like, get the fucking hurry up. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, but it's always far more interesting when you... um, Somebody posted a quote this week. I don't know if it was true. It was like Mahatma Gandhi or somebody saying, saying, um, Mahatma Gandhi posted a tweet. Yeah, I have so much. I have so much to do this week that I have to meditate for two hours a day instead of one. Um, I want to get to this next item. Stop stalling. Yeah, okay. um, so, Jason Wingrove, the man himself, is part of the Rode Microphones Ultimate Filmmaking Experience Rock and Roll Rockumentary Competition that allows you, dear listener, uh, to have what I think is going to be an absolutely brilliant opportunity uh, to win prizes over $25,000. So, Jason, tell us about this. This is uh, from our friends at Rode Microphones, and this is indeed really, really, I think, really interesting. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool, actually. And I really, you know, I got on board because I really respect them as a company and what they're doing, and there's a lot of people doing a lot of 
kind of weird PR in this world. But I like I like the way Rode are um, you know spending their. I am speaking dollar. into a Rode microphone as we speak. What's that? I, I'm using a Rode right now. This Actually, is I, I, I only too. use if I only change, use their mics I'm, I'm for testing podcasting. This. I've got this little headset, the PS One, I think it's called. Um, I, I might check that. That might not be the right name. Um, but um, yeah, so like I got on board with this because I really appreciate uh, the company. I think Rode's really sort of, you know, really kicking it and they're spending their promo PR dollar quite wisely, I think, here. They've been having this competition running for a while for um, called Rode Rocks for uh, bands to apply and then they would win, the winning band would get flown to LA to work with some really serious producers and get studio time, get an album cut and uh, walk away with a whole swag of uh, Rode gear and mics as well. And so the road documentary is what I've sort of involved in, and that's um, to um, if you submit a video uh, via their website for uh, including a road, get a road mic somewhere in the video there, you can uh, win the opportunity to go and document this recording, document the band, document the artists and the studio, and the whole experience of going to LA for these guys. And this is like again, again with road with road rocks. This is can be flying the band from. Uh, and and this filmmaker from anywhere in the world doesn't matter where you live they'll fly them accommodate you uh, give you camera rental and uh, I think there's also some a whole bunch of road swag as well so yeah it's really really good really to be applauded great company some awesome gear they make I'm really okay so just to just to hit those points again because I, I just want to be sure everyone understands them anyone can enter this if you win they'll fly you from anywhere in the world. They'll let you have any camera you like, and you can use any camera you like to make the the yep. uh, the setup. And you will get to be in LA when the band is recording and make a rockumentary exactly. about them. And there's one more point to this, Jason Wingrove. You'll be there to basically advise and uh, sort of mentor and yeah. I'm and hoping help. the person's just gonna be really awesome, and I can just you know I can just yeah kick yeah kick back <laughs> by the pool. <laughs> But uh, look, yeah, you get sort of be mentored, and uh, there's some great people involved, and Phil Bloom, and um, we've got a lot of terrific judges like uh, Nina Leitner and uh, Dan Lanny and um, uh, Mickey Jones, Jared Abrams. We've got some great, yep. great names involved in the sort of judging and the production side. And it's not just the shoot, but then it will also be we get an editor involved there and so we'll sort of go through the whole post process as well and go take it from, from go to woe. And uh yeah, get some hands on some some gear you may not have and uh, get a bit of experience. Hopefully learn something. I'm sure I will as well as we go and uh walk away with a with a great walk away with a great project. So it should be cool. Now that that winning prize of being flown to LA to work with Jason and and do this is awesome. But even the second prize is about uh, it would be worth it. Like a normal competition, that would be worth it. I mean, we don't normally sort of, but this is a ton of audio gear, a ton of mics and uh, speakers and a bunch of other uh, camera related gear. Yeah, so road, yeah, I would they're, totally they're recommend video mic pros and uh, lapel mics yeah. and. Um, uh, shotgun mics, boom poles, audio monitors, backpack. Yeah, it's a ton of stuff. And third prize, everything. It's so, it's um, yeah, pretty impressive. And you know, it's 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 open to, you know, depending on the person as to what how they want to sort of. There's no sort of fixed budget as to how we sort of work this. It just depends on everyone's going to have their own approach, and so we're sort of a bit open to 
uh, how we kind of spend the sort of invisible road production dollars there. So yeah, we're, we're we're open to suggestions, and you know, look, the project you send doesn't have to be um, uh, like like uh, you 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 got you know paid Spielberg on the side to help you make it and uh, shot it with five phantoms and eight epics already. This the idea really is to have an interesting idea, show that you're an interested an interested engaged filmmaker and you creative person, and get road mics in there somewhere, and um, uh, yeah, just kind of just i guess we sort of it's it's a chance for us to see your filmmaking personality i guess a bit so now obviously you're going to be there mentoring somebody when they're making when they if they've yeah. won but you are not a sole judge of what wins so as you aren't a sole judge of what wins let me get your opinion on this if you, if i was going to do this and you were advising me on the sort of thing that you think might go well given that as i say no, you're not the sole judge so this is not it comes down to people's vote as well as a combination. So, what would you go with? I would s- hesitate at a guess to say you'd want really heavily to not get the tech in front of the engaging story because if you're judging a lot of these, and let's face it, there's going to be quite a lot coming in, um, just lots of pretty picture slider cam stuff probably isn't going to stand out from the yeah, crowd. Yeah, I right? think it has to come down to... To show that you have, I guess this is a documentary competition. I guess so. I show that you have an interest or somewhat of a of a of an idea of how to cover a little interesting event or a person or a, um, a social gathering or you know a little mini portrait of a person. Um, I think. Is there a duration on the submission I entry? Think there like is. how I long the film has to be it is off, off the top of my head, but there is a bit of a duration. I think like anything, you know, I think if if someone's amazing and it's like 5 seconds over, big deal, you know, and we're going to be going for, you know, the interesting we're going to be going for the right project and not stickling exactly by the, you know, hard and fast rules. I think it's um we want to have a show that you have an interest in humanity and interest in idea and concept and content. Uh, beyond, you know, using uh, any interesting visual techniques. I think what I think with the project, the balance will be we want to make sure that it can not just be engaging. But, you know, there's no reason why docos can't look good as well. But, you know, this particular submission doesn't, for my my eyes, I don't need it to, to look astounding i think that's part of also the mentoring and part of you know what we can bring in the in the final production uh this i think we really just want to see that you're interested in in the document you know and you have a sort of a have a little spark there of the ability to do the doco process or have an interest in humanity and a little bit of storytelling yeah i think and and I just looked it up. It's up to two minutes in duration, right. they're saying. So the best video up to two minutes in duration. Um, though, as you said, maybe like a couple of seconds over isn't going to be uh, death knell, but I would certainly keep it short and punchy. Otherwise, it's yeah, unlikely sure. that we... if you buried the good stuff at four minutes, it's not going to be yeah. seen. Yeah. But look, you know, an open brief, you know, just just go for it. I'm sure the, the cream will rise to the top, as they say. But, um, yeah, just have fun with it. Don't don't try and try and don't bust your ass trying to make it look amazing. Just go for you know content. It's humanity and, and stuff that that comes through. And uh, yeah, keep that in mind. So um, presumably you'll be able to document this for us uh, as the as you get to LA and stuff. Um, 
and uh, we'll be able to sort of track this as it goes along. What's the time frame on this happening? When has it all got to be in by and what's oh, the... Um, asking me all these incredible this? questions. I don't know. Um, I think it's okay. sort of somewhere around August and then I think we are the uh, actual shoot in LA is right about November. Okay. Yeah, so... Sorry. All right. Well, we'll stay in touch with that. Links uh, in the show and, notes. Uh, and follow and it through because I'm really interested to see what happens. Yep. Yeah. Road, roadmike.com slash slash documentary. And uh, yeah, the, all the details are there and uh, in the show notes as well. Well, moving on, um, there is uh, – we've discussed this before. This is the uh, ACAM, this tiny sort of uh, panachromatic uh, small camera, this 7,700 euro um, I think this camera announced is, around. Uh, yeah, well, we've, we've talked before about the the, the iconoscope, um, the small sensor, raw cinema DNG, tiny little sort of weird pocket thing. It's a, a very unusual camera for a European. Um, but yeah, announced kind of NAB past. Even though I went and saw them on NAB, no one actually mentioned it. I think it was maybe around about that time they brought out the. Um, um, just the panchromatic, which is a CCD which is, camera, not yeah, a CMOS. Purely, um, it's an interesting. There's an interesting. It's an interesting sort of a little bit of um, uh, a bit of a theme at the moment because uh, Leica have just brought out something called the monochrome, which is a pure black and white only digital Leica. I just kind of think. Well, I kept thinking. Well, hang on a second. Look, <laughs> why would you buy a camera that's locking you into to black and white when you can seriously just make create some quite lovely black and white looks in post? But then I thought, well, yeah, hey, there's a lot of people. I love the idea of dedicating yourself purely to black and white, thinking in black and white. Your viewfinder is going to be working only in black and white, and you get to sort of, sort of, frame stuff with that in mind once you're in that black and white mode. Um, you know, this is this is not 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 cheap camera, and this is not a big. You know, this is not a a full frame sensor or anything. It's like a ten mil by six mil sensor, the same as the uh, color version of the Iconoscope, and it's uh, nearly eight thousand euro. But uh, you know, I like the idea of the sort of doing it differently. It's interesting the whole idea of buying a dedicated black and white camera. Apart from the creative side, I'm presuming, Mike, there's going to be some technical, technical pluses. I don't know a lot about this, other than obviously not having a Bayer pattern and um, and understanding the size of the camera as you know huge uh, advantages in terms of you know stuff to do with it. Uh, I I'm I don't think the dynamic range on this is like that astounding and it's uh, asa is uh, right. 200 so both of those things are kind of little flags to me i'm like really only 200 wouldn't it be like better if it was up at 800 and wouldn't it be better if it was like uh because the bit depth be is, is only 12 bits a, um you know being a being mm. a you know, black and white sensor i don't know hey um as an aside rat hole whatever you know we got to go and hang out with the um Black Magic camera. The All right. Oh, cool. And got to shoot with it. Well, now that's that would be the fine line in the sand. We got to mm-hmm. hold it. We got to shoot with it and hit the record button. We just weren't allowed to take away the right. footage. Um, but we went out on set of the Australian uh, production Puberty Blues, which is a major thing uh, shooting in Sydney, and they were using it. This is the first time the uh, Black Magic camera has actually been used as a C camera. 
so they and the reason I brought this up is similarly to this uh, uh, panachromatic camera. When they wanted to get into places that were very cramped and small, the Alexas would be very awkward to sort of shoot with, and so they moved over to the very small uh, Black Magic camera, which they say, and I totally have no reason to doubt them, is cutting in extremely well with the um, Alexa. The Micro Four Thirds camera is, is that cutting in really well with the Super Thirty Five camera. Okay. I'm just saying that I haven't seen it because I haven't got any footage mm. from them. Okay. Um, so the camera is progressed a long way since we saw it last, and it is now recording and doing stuff. There are a couple of things that I think really um, uh, need work before they ship it, and I have no reason to believe they won't work on these, but um, the biggest one is controlling exposure. I don't like how it currently controls exposure, but look, it's not a release of the camera. It's not even in a public beta. So um, it's, it's doing everything that it said it would, and it's producing really nice pictures. Um, I just... Because everything's touch Very keen really. to see you have an session. iris on your... Which you don't know. It has Canon mounts and things. And Correct. PL mounts. I can't remember. There's a whole bunch of mounts. But uh, say you've got Canon mounts on... Canon lenses on there. There is no real sort of jog wheels or anything. You have to do everything uh, on the touchscreen, don't you? Yes. And so I don't think the way they've set that up at the moment is right. I mean, I'm immediately zeroing in on the one thing that kind of bugged me. Um, but a lot of the other stuff didn't bug me, right? A lot of the other stuff, uh, mm. you know, seemed good and seemed robust and, um, and it's crying out for third market to come along and stick things all over yeah. it. I mean, of course the camera is going to be a lot cheaper, even than this, uh, panachromatic camera. It's going to be, uh, you know, th- sort of the, around the range of a 5D Mark III. Uh, so I think there's going to be a lot of interest in it. And I don't know that the four thirds inch in of itself is going to be a mega problem um, if you really want that shallow depth of field, you can go for the 5D Mark III. If you don't, if you're doing other stuff... Yeah. I can't uh, say this is... You know, I wouldn't have picked this as a, you know, B-cam, rig cam, whatever, for for an Alexa shoot myself. There's a couple of other cameras, I don't know, say C300, which is worldwide tested to be a really nice sort of alternative uh, um, to that. I think this is a great interview camera. It's a terrific interview camera. While we're on that same bent, we got to grab a whole lot of C500 footage, Um now, you were looking at the C500 NAB, and we got a ton of footage. This was all for our um, camera tech course at FXPHD. And I was pulling apart the C500 footage, like down to or the... 500 No, sir, 500. Okay. Um, and I was pulling the 500 footage apart by... Because uh, it's 4K footage. Yeah. And we were blowing it up and then separating out the channels and looking into underneath like you know a mon like a jewel hulled ferry like a ferry that's you know basically like a catamaran mm. so we were zooming in underneath that catamaran bit where the water is at night <laughs> so it's pretty dark okay. and uh the noise was remarkable in the, in, the, in its absence what were you recording uh, on because the camera itself in 4k it does not record to internal does it codex codex right yep so this is a proper recording, uh, really high quality all the way through, and we got the original files off the codec, so you weren't getting like a you know H.264 of it or something. Mm-hmm. And um, so they were big files. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but uh, no um, interference patterns, no mores, no problems with the noise. I mean, I was really stunned. At, in fact, my whole opinion of the camera 
went up dramatically when I looked at the footage. And I've got to say, that's how really it should be, right? Covered, really, partly because I've sort of been a bit kind of it's like, not, well, A, it's going to be, I don't know, stupid expensive, B, it's not really out yet, and C, Canon never even, they don't call, they don't write. No, that's um, not true. Stop it. Shut up. No, that I'm Canon announced. That? I, I shut up. Yes, up. shut up, you dick. Yeah, no, we like Canon a lot. Okay, we like. <laughs> Slap you down there, sir. Excellent. We do. You're right. Of, of no, we do. we do. I remember now. You're really kind. <laughs> Shut up. I love Canon. Excellent. Um, good, yes. Good to hear. Good Did to I mention hear. I got a whole lot of C500 footage? You get um, So, yeah, no, just because you don't... I mean, look, I know most people, you know, <laughs> and rightly throw <laughs> things at your feet and rarely at mine, thing, yeah. but occasionally... Occasionally, I get some uh, some inside goss, and uh, and this is one of those rare occasions. So yeah, anyway, I, I was, I, I I look, I have this big thing about shots of cameras these days, as you know. I find it uh, boring to the point of yawning that you just get new cameras published where all we get is arty shots of the camera. I yeah. want to see what the camera produces, and in the case of the C five hundred. I certainly feel like the images are speaking much, much stronger than any sexy product shots on turntables could ever do. So I'm, no, I'm really, seriously, these files are impressive. Interesting. Okay, I look forward to it. Yeah, so, no, really. Uh, I mean, this is not going to be a cheap, this is not a cheap alternative. You know. We'll cover that camera so. when it's released. I mean, it's going to be a release and we'll, you know, obviously cover that and the mm. pricing and everything else. Yeah. Um, but to actually you know, correctly get the horse before the cart. Yes. What's most important is that it's producing really nice images. And um, and then after that, uh, the fact that it's Canon, I think, speaks volumes. I, this is a camera. I sort of expected this um, when they released the C300. Mm. Um, and I think there's probably more to come because, you know, we saw that picture on the initial launch at uh, Paramount Studios when we went there for the Canon professional cine launch of a what looked like SLR doing 4K, but no one sort of mentioned it. So I'm, I don't think Canon's, and I'm not speaking, I'm not breaking NDA here, I'm just saying, like speculating, that picture was in the official slides and we haven't seen it yet. So I reckon that's coming soon, right. uh, or at least sometime. I actually thought it might have been at NAB. So yeah, I think, you know, Canon... Look, we've said it, you know, the 5D Mark III, or rather the Mark II, was just an exceptional, exceptional camera. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was like, literally, the the Mark III you talk about? Uh, both, the two and the three, both exceptional cameras. Yeah, I mean, it's just as an aside this week, I was just literally shooting in, like, neonatal wards in um, a quiet time when they turn all the lights out and, uh, are, like, oh, wow. seriously, like... At a hundred ISO, I don't know what it seemed completely whacked, but I was in there just like almost overexposed with the five D Mark III. And, and do you mean a hundred or do you mean a thousand? I was, could put the ISO anywhere I liked and okay. get excellent sort of what seemed like reasonably good uh, dynamic range in there. And uh, yeah, it's, it's very very. I was looking by my eye at the wall behind this this person, and it was sort of almost you know so dark, and then looking in the viewfinder even only about a thousand ISO and I'm, it's like way overexposed I'm just had more control than I ever needed particularly in these areas where I just could not light it you've got like sort of um, babies that aren't really due to be that are actually outside their mother that aren't due to be born for another sort of six weeks or so yet and, or four weeks and um, um, tiny things that you know can't really obviously can't see very well and in very moody rooms um, 
and uh, yeah, we can't really. And you, you know, you're only allowed a very minimal amount of people in. You're almost not even allowed another bag. So the ability to bring in lights and start moving stuff around was just impossible. So yeah, it was it was it was great to um, have a camera I could wind up to you know a couple of thousand ISO. And we were doing like night stuff as well, like um, early early like pre dawn night and getting streets to look uh, fantastic. So I was you know very impressed with what I could get out of uh, a DSLR these days. I have no problem with taking that camera to 5,000, and I still think I've got a little bit of latitude. I think 6,000 yeah, is about my upper limit. I know you say that. I didn't risk it. I, but, uh, no, really. Yeah, I it's ca- it's I good. I did keep that in the back of my, my head. I didn't need to go anything more than about 16 or 2,000 or so. But, uh, yeah, it was quite interesting lighting someone by the back of a... By a lighting someone by the reversing light on the back of a garbage truck sitting at a bus stop and you know just sort of literally could difference between um you know exposure and not exposure was and and full or overexposure was if there was a car coming past in the background and headlights from 50 feet away were were giving me um, you know great exposure lighting it with cars and lighting it with reverse lights and just putting someone in the right spot to get some interesting light uh, from the available available stuff well, we should uh, keep moving and go <laughs> to our interviews. Uh, do you want to just um, – well, we already sort of probably set this up, but do you want to just uh, set up again um, uh, your interview? Yeah, with, okay. Uh, yes, Red Ryan from Red Rock. A good man. And um, I just really wanted to have a catch-up with him because um, they kind of set the world alight a couple of NABs ago with uh, with the Micromote focus system, and then it was like, hello – Hello. Silence. Uh, yeah, crickets. radio silence. So we wanted, we wanted to check in on that and plus of other bunch of stuff. And, uh, yeah, it was quite interesting. Anything from dealing to uh, dealing with Apple, dealing with copycats and um, the difference between Australian and American Coca-Cola. Uh, last time I saw you, you are incredibly busy. Your booth is always packed at NAB and... Seems like you're always doing demos, especially on camera. How do you, I'm going to start. How do you deal with something like that at NEB where you're literally repeating yourself for five days? Do you not just go home and just want to like stab you know, needles in your eyes or drink heavily? <laughs> well, it's a great question. This last NEB, this 2012, just a few months ago, wasn't too bad. The two NABs ago, yeah. when we first uh, showed the micro remote, this was. It, it was more of a concept at that time, and we showed the version with the uh, iPhone or iPod Touch built in, and you know had a really wonderful, intuitive demo, and just I think it really blew a lot of people's minds. Back then, that was putting iPhones or iPods for any sort of device. What you know, we saw some iPad um, uh, scrollers. You know, what yeah, am I thinking? Prompters. Yeah. Pro- prompters, thank you. Uh, and you know that, of course, won some best in show award. But, you know that was at the time that all that stuff was coming together, and we were we were short staffed that year. And I literally stood in the same spot every day from nine o'clock until six o'clock with no break. And I'm not saying I'm you know some wonderful person because any small company you know that has doesn't have a lot of staff probably goes through the same thing, especially if they're lucky enough to have a really popular product. And I really don't know how I did it at that time. This last time around, you're right. We do a lot of demos. We do a lot of on-camera things. And to answer your question directly, I don't think it's possible to to do what you described, to do the same demo five days in a row. It's, in fact, that's 
kind of the opposite of how I look at it. I mean, I think about it more as it's a learning experience for us to explain what we're doing, see how people react, kind of refine it, and also get new ideas uh, for the product. So it's more of an ongoing conversation. Uh, and in fact, if you were to come to me at the morning of day one and say, tell me about these products, we have a little conversation. And then if you were to come at the end of the show and say, tell me about your products, chances are you would hear a completely different, <laughs> but I would hope more compelling and more succinct explanation of you know what we have. Yeah. Well, yes, indeed, you did blow our minds a couple of years ago. And that, I guess, added to the frustration of the fact that everyone was sort of saying, uh, Brian, where the fuck is this thing? Because you blew our minds and now we, can't, now we can't buy it. And now it seems like it was sort of coming soon, coming soon, coming soon. Oh, sold out. So <laughs> I think yeah, well, everybody would really love a heads up as to um, where everything really is with with the um, the, the wireless uh, microphone. Uh, what do we call? It? I keep remembering, the, keep forgetting the name. It's, well, it, it, it's interesting you mention. Okay, so it's you know the official name is the micro remote. Uh, we refer to it as a remote focus system, and it's funny we kind of roll into this just having this conversation about you know demos and changing our story because when we first demonstrated it. It was a. It was. We thought about it as a wireless uh, follow focus system, uh, and it happened to have you know this great iPod or I, uh, you know iPhone uh, interface, and it showed you all sorts of wonderful things about your depth of field and the you know the sonar rangefinder that allowed you to kind of figure out where the um, the actual subject distance was. And we thought about it as you know if we could build something that felt like a video game where pulling focus was now something that was intuitive and fun and you could look at uh, a display and figure out what was going on. We thought that that's really where it needed to go. And then we started to add little bits and pieces like there was a finger wheel where, you know, you could attach it to your hand grip and if you were an operator, it could work that way. And then this last go around, we demonstrated a, what we call a follow focus emulator, which is a, a big wheel that kind of sits on the side of your rig and it looks like a, a regular follow focus, you know, acts like a regular follow focus, except out the back, instead of a gear connecting to your lens, it was a wire that went to, you know, the base station and the motor. So it, it had the same feel and the same ergonomics as a follow focus, but it yeah. was yet just another kind of controller uh, yeah. for the remote. And so over the course of our last NAB, we evolved the way we talk about it from a wireless follow focus system plus all this other stuff into it's really a remote focus system, which of which wireless is just one of the ways you can use it. And it seems to really kind of gel for people in understanding it that way. It's a different than just a wireless unit. Yeah, so you've added the uh, the micro remote wireless, which is what I just basically call the classic classic standard wireless Steadicam setup like a Hayden or whatever I would have right, used right. Uh, a decade ago, um, which is obviously a great step forward in not just um, usability, but in, in, I guess, street cred from the video game sort of system, which would appeal to a lot of people and still people will, the you know, the, the market is out there for that one, but uh, the... Uh, you know, it's all great to have a video game, but at the end of the day, f- f- pulling focus is uh, no game, and it's freaking hard, and uh, you want the best tool you can, and you can't beat having a good, big, solid wheel with uh, no flashing lights and just, you know, make some marks and get on with it. Yeah, well, you know, when we, when we demonstrate the iPhone version, uh, you know, it, it elicits a strong reaction one way or the other. People love it or they hate it. You know, and, and generally the people who hate it tend to be the professionals, the professional ACs who, you know, 
they can, you know, measure out a, you know, empty soda can on the set and know that that's 10 feet. And, you know, they pull by, by eye the entire time. They don't even look at a monitor. I mean, it's, yeah. it's completely remarkable how these guys do this stuff. Um, but they don't, they don't need that kind of information. And for them, you know, this last time around, we came out with the, uh, the micro remote that doesn't have the iPhone built in. And, you know, everyone seems really, really happy with that. Uh, but it's, I also think about it in terms of sort of the DSLR revolution. You know, it's invited a lot of people who maybe are not uh, skilled in the art of filmmaking in the traditional sense. You know, they didn't go to school for it. It's not their lifelong passion. Maybe they're a serious hobbyist or, you know, they do have the passion but maybe not the budget. Uh, um, focus pulling is still it's – it's an art form, right? I mean it takes years and years and years to do well and for most of us, we just don't – have the time or maybe even don't have the budget to hire somebody like that and the question is well okay so what do we do uh yeah i did it for 12 years and i was still crap at it <laughs> yeah well you and know, I, you, know you, never, you, never get, you never get really really good at it which is why i got out of it <laughs> it's, it's, it's tough but and the guys who are really good i mean they may make a ton of money and you know and they do they do i mean it's 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 truly magical because they make it seem so effortless right yeah but that comes from all those years of experience and for the rest of everybody else, it's just like, God, I mean, pulling focus and they, you know, usually I hear is they get a high def monitor and they're watching the monitor really closely. And, you know, I think that's probably state of the art right now. But by the time they're pulling focus and they see what's going on, you know, they've, they've already kind of overshot it or, or something else. Yeah, so exactly. You got to see it go sort of, to react to it. Yeah. 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 So you're, the, how you're pulling focus is seeing things go out of focus and then correcting for it. And that's, yeah, you know, that's the art of pulling focus is kind of the opposite of that. But, uh, we realized that you know just having something that could give people an understanding of you know if you could if you could know how far that person was and they're five feet eight inches and you could look at your display and say well I'm only focused at you know, five feet one inch you would sort of without having to guess at it know where to go and that was the the, the whole sort of purpose of that iPhone or iPod Touch uh, interface the iOS device I guess is what we say now that was another thing we learned to say at NAB is the iOS device version. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, yeah, um, NAB, I forget about all the things we learned. So, where is that uh, that version is still planned. It's just not uh, on the sh- on the on the site at this stage. Yeah, so here's kind of as a, as we speak now, here's where we are. We so as I mentioned, you, we talked about this has been in, in kind of the the development stages for a couple years. So as a result, we developed a rather lengthy reservation list. They kind of had first crack at it, and you know they frankly earned the right. So we are slowly delivering on that list. Uh, you know, it's a brand new. It's not just a product; it's actually a family of products about about six or seven different products. Uh, so we are kind of going slowly, making sure that everyone's satisfied as they receive them. And you know, so far, it's 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 gone quite well. We've had a you know couple of updates, which is about where we wanted to be. And you know, I think now we're ready to to kind of open the gates and let everybody else uh, get access to it. It's just going to take a while to kind of catch up uh, with demand. Yeah. That version is the version that's not the iOS-capable version. Yes. Um, that handheld controller that we continue to demonstrate and you know we're still working on is sitting at Apple right now waiting for hardware uh, review and waiting for uh, the app review. And, and once we get through that process and they kind of – Apple says, yes, we bless it. Uh, then we can kind of move on to production and get that piece out. And it's going to work with all the, the components we're releasing now. It's just – it's kind of in Apple's court right now. How long has it been sitting at the altar there awaiting to be blessed, just out of interest? Uh, wow, that is a good question. It's 
it's not the the way that Apple works is it's not you send it to them and then at some point you know you, the the green buzzer goes off and the and the light you know shines and then you we say great let's you know we're off to see the wizard and let's go get these things produced. What happens is they actually require a series of uh, hardware reviews in which you submit you know multiple units to them. They essentially destroy them. They take them apart and. Um, I, I believe there's like something like four or five or six iterations of this. Um, and when you submit them, you really don't know what's – you know, they may just say that's fine or they may say we can't allow the following 12 things and you may have to go back to the drawing board and completely redesign the thing. And, it's, it, and with Apple, it's not a lot of let's negotiate or we really think it's a good idea. It's you know kind of this decree handed on down. So you know, we're towards the latter stages of this, but you know, we're still – we're, you know, I, I hope sometime this year we're going to see the see the end of it. But it's uh, it's a little frustrating, you know. So for those folks, you know, I think a lot of people who are in the creative business probably in some way, shape, or form have been involved in app development, you know, and that's kind of frustrating. But boy, I'll tell you, do hardware development, and you think yeah. that that's think that's a whole different world of hers. Well, I hope they don't go changing the dot connector on you. <laughs> I think we're. I think I like to think pretty safe with that I and mean, we've survived through a couple different version of iphones and uh the ipod touch has changed a little bit but everything has worked so far so even if the form factor changes a little bit we've accommodated uh for that uh but i just i really you know my my heart is in that product and i would love to see it go out there because it's it's one experience to hand a uh, a remote focus system to an experienced AC. In fact, we were just down on set at Warner Brothers, uh, I think I want to say it was Wednesday, just two days ago, and we were at a, a well-known TV show, and uh, they have Preston Fizz units there, and uh, these these units, you know, they're, they're, they're the industry standard. What do they run? About $20, yeah. $25,000 yeah. for a three-motor system. And so we, here we are coming in, and, you know, we knew some people, and, and uh, so we demonstrating our system and you know more and more people came around and you know these people i mean they make their living from it they're not they're not there to brush our ego they're not there to waste their time they want to know if it's a tool that's going to work and not only did we start using it and and they really liked it and they liked the performance but it turned out that we tested the interoperability with preston motors and also with the red rock torque motors with the preston fizz unit and it all worked great and then when we tell them the price you know the complete system is about twenty four hundred dollars you know maybe twenty five hundred with the cables it, it kind of just—they're <laughs> not quite sure to what, what to make of that. Uh, yeah, because so they tell people. I mean, the average price of say a Hayden motor or a um, Preston motor is—I don't know—it's like what seven thousand dollars. I don't know—it's multiple thousands of dollars, right? Just for the motor. Yeah, just well, I mean, I think that the 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 really nice Hayden digital motors. I think the the price for just the motor is about two thousand twenty five hundred. So for a complete digital system, I mean, just the bare bones basic system that you can get today, it's about six thousand uh, dollars. But that doesn't include some of the you know, advanced features that we add in there in terms of the sonar rangefinder. In terms of, you know, because it is digital, you can auto calibrate lenses, things like that. It's just yeah. it's a whole different kind of feel to it. And then on top of that, again, we're not talking about just a wireless, a better wireless unit. We're talking about a remote focus system that includes a finger wheel, includes a tether capability, and includes a uh, you know a, a follow focus emulator that just. You know, at that point, they just feel like it's something entirely different. Yeah, because no one makes that stuff. No one makes the finger. I mean, no matter how much money you throw at Preston or whatever, you will not get any of that gear. That that this is new. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. I mean, Preston, believe me, I mean, I have nothing but great things to say about Preston. I mean, yeah. if we could all afford Preston's, we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, well, let's talk about the motors then, because this, uh, uh, I think the overlying comment is this shit is hard. Uh, m- making motors that are uh, good, digital, repeatable, and hit the same mark, going in either direction and with no backlash and, uh, and don't cost you know multiple thousands of dollars is, is hard stuff. So part of the other sort of thing you've been working on since you know, NAB two years ago is your own motors. Yeah, so we so first you know we kind of were hedging the bet about whether to go analog or digital and uh, eventually we, we bit the bullet decided to, to redesign it to be a digital system. Uh, and that was because we wanted some of the advanced features that digital gave gave us, for example, like you know the ability to auto calibrate uh, the lenses, um, which is something you don't really see in analog systems. So what happens is you know you put your lens on, you attach the motor, you press a button, it finds the 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 two endpoints of the lens, and then you know pretty much you're ready to go. With a with an analog system, you actually have to kind of press buttons and figure out the end of each of the lenses, and then. You know, at some point you can uh, start using it, but it just takes a little bit more effort. And although it's not, a, in my opinion, it's not a lot more time and effort. Any time spent not in production irritates production people. Yeah. So, without <clears throat> being, you know, completely understanding that, we, uh, we, uh, you know, our original design was using the Hayden motors, which we still are compatible with and we still love. And you know, they've got a bunch of different options for you know higher torque uh, versions of things. But ultimately. We looked at it and said, if we go down this route, the minimum price is going to be two thousand, about $2,500, and that's just for the motor, and then anything that we do is going to be on top of it. So we didn't really see any game where we could really, really fundamentally change the price point unless we took control over all the components. And so we started down this path to develop our own uh, digital motor. And it took us uh, about a year to figure it out. And it's a lot of trial and error and a lot of testing of a lot of different lenses. And uh, ultimately, we came up with the, the Red Rock Torque motors, which are these really tiny, I think, you know, they might be the smallest digital motors available kind of in its class. I, I haven't sat down and actually looked at all the different motors, but it's, you know, smaller than anything else that we've seen. Um, <clears throat> and it runs about retail about $595. Which is just insane. Um, I've got to say, that's insane. It is, it, it, and we're really, I mean, it's, it's one of the things that we're the most proud of because that kind of performance and that size of package alone is really hard to do, let alone at a price point of, of $595. So, you know, not only can you use it with our system, but as we were testing it with the Preston system, and it was, you know, working beautifully. I mean, it's a wonderful controller that Preston has, uh, if you can afford it. Uh, but they were saying, like, man, Steadicam guys would love this because it's about, in the Preston motors that we were testing, it was about, God, I want to say about a third, maybe a quarter of the weight and size. And, you know, with Steadicam folks, they just, yeah. anything they could do along those lines, they love yeah. that stuff. So is there a sort of time frame as when we'll come out of the sort of slow rollout of the reservation list people and when we'll start to, uh, you know, get some real stock there, people can get their hands on? Well, we are... I think we're in the f- latter stages of the slow rollout. Um, so, as I had mentioned, we really want everyone to have an extremely positive experience with a micro remote. 
Now, it might sound like motherhood and apple pie, like everyone, everyone, of course, who wouldn't want to have that experience? But in some ways, we're working with an, an audience that for some of them, not only is the micro remote new, but the concept of using a wireless follow focus is new. The fact that you need an external battery is new. The fact you have to calibrate lenses is new. And so it's not just a product rollout of you know, five or six or seven interoperating parts you have to make sure are configured correctly and powered correctly and you know how to use them correctly, but you kind of have to teach people about how to pull focus. Uh, so it affects our documentation, it affects our packaging, but all of that kind of comes together where we literally for the first probably five or ten or so went to them individually, sat down with them for a couple hours, showed them how it worked, talked to them about their experience, made sure that they knew how to do it, and then, you know, got a lot of texts, a lot of phone calls, and, and when they ran into questions of, of issues, and, you know, early on, there was, it, it's a firmware upgradable system, so, you know, there was a couple things we caught that we wanted to improve a little bit, which I can talk about later, but, you know, we actually enhanced the system and made it a little bit more functional than it was when we started. Uh, we're at the end of that process now, so I think we're going to start to see probably through, I guess, July is in a couple of days, so... Probably through the first part of July, we're going to see an acceleration of uh, the reservation list shipments. And then once we get through those, we're going to open up to general availability, and, and pretty much anybody uh, can order them. How soon you get it, I think, is really just going to depend on you know, how many people order it and how, how fast we can build these. And I'm hoping it's going to be short, but um, you know, when I think some of these early reviews start to get out and people see what's going on and they can actually see the performance – I have a feeling it's going to be a pretty popular product. Yeah, and don't ask you about iOS device-based products because uh, that uh, go 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 ask Tim Cook. Well, I, you know, I love to. I would talk about it all day long. In fact, if if someone I'm talking to someone on the street, I have the the application I can pull up, and you know, there's a little demo mode that it goes into. I mean, I've shown it to people at bus stops. I love this thing. It's wonderful. It's exactly what I, as a non-professional AC, love to see and would love to use. It's just, you know, it's not in our hands right now, so uh, I, don't, I don't lose too much sleep over it. But as soon as they, you know, give us the go-ahead, boy, you know, we're, we're full speed ahead on that production. I really think I that think that's the need one. To be. Yeah, I think that that's the one that really is going to open up a lot of people's eyes in terms of, you know what, I really can't pull focus. Yeah. Let's talk about the uh, cages, which obviously started with the developing of the C300 cage. You know, Canon, I guess, came to you. The cages were around when the camera was launched. Um, really nice to actually be involved in that early stage. With Red Rock in particular, but with people who build accessories for cameras um, in our industry, there's always a certain amount of lead time that you're going to get to build accessories. You know, get drawings, get sample camera, things like that. And it really depends on which manufacturer you're working with and how sophisticated they are and how much they value third-party accessories. So, and, it, and it varies widely. Some companies, they'll give us drawings even before the camera's available. They'll send us you know, sample cameras. It, it's wonderful to work with them, and they're interested in our feedback. Other companies, we'll find out about the camera after it's been announced and someone asked us if, you know, if we're compatible with this certain camera, and we'll have no idea what they're talking about and look on a web page and go, oh, I guess there's a new camera from these guys. Um, in Canon's case, you know, we had done uh, some work with them, and they, they actually, uh, the, a few NABs ago, they saw the micro remote, and they saw the work that we had done with the M3 cinema lens adapter and how it converted their um, XF300 series camera into a really beautiful you know, cinema-style camera. Um, they said, we think that you're the guys uh, to develop 
a support system for a new camera that we're working on. It's going to be you know something no one's ever seen before from Canon. We're we're focusing on the cinema market, and uh, we'd like to work with you guys on it. And of course, we said absolutely. Sounds wonderful. We don't know what it is, but sounds great. And uh, we worked on that for about let me think about this about six months. So it was probably spring of 2011 when we first started working on it. You know, months and months ahead of of, of the announcement. And uh, we originally worked on it just from drawings. And uh, fortunately, their drawings are pretty accurate. And so when we went to go and, and put these cages on to the cameras down at Canon Hollywood, which at the time was, you know, didn't say anything about Canon and say, you know, anybody look to the left. There's nothing going on here. You know, yeah. carry on. Uh, and it fit. It was wonderful. And, you know, it was exactly kind of the thing uh, that we envisioned for this camera because, as we know with the C300, what a wonderful camera. Again, what an odd concept that they would take kind of the worst of DSLR form factor and kind of force this camera into it. Uh, yeah. So it, it, it all worked out uh, really well. And one of the things that happened, you know, we, we sort of originally envisioned that we would build these cages and, you know, Canon loved them, of course. And, uh, and, and they were going to do uh, about three or four of these um, – these movies, these little short movies, which of course they then showed at the uh, Canon launch, and it was pretty much all ASC guys and, and DGA guys. And uh, so we went to go drop them off, and we were kind of we thought we would just hand it to them, and they would go off. And you know, of course, you know, everyone was doing prep at Claremont and you know, all these places that just everybody knew exactly what was going on and what to do. Yeah. And as we were sort of walking out the door, we were kind of like, okay, guys, so you know, you probably have some rigs you're working with and you know you have follow focuses and all these sorts of things and and we sort of looked at the 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 look on their faces and we realized like "Ah, i don't i don't think these guys have really kind of connected those last few dots um not that they weren't capable of doing that but just you know it's like well how do we go from a camera with a cage to production so we kind of stuck around and we ended up kind of crewing on these um four films uh, providing gear, providing you know some insight. You know, of course, we were learning the cameras as a lot of these people were. So, in some ways, in those first couple of months, we were about as expert on the camera and the functions as, as other folks were, just simply because we were around the cameras as much as other folks. So, yeah, well, it's and, terrific and, to see your rigs. You know, in the first few test movies, like Mobius with Vince and stuff. Yeah, and, and Vince, you know, Vince was out in the desert and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, the, the 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 very first one was Max's back. And, uh, you know, that was the one where everybody was there because we were trying to figure out if everything was going to work. And it was kind of a couple prototype cameras. And I think one overheated and turned magenta. I mean, the behind the stuff, behind the scenes of what was going on with those was pretty, it was pretty remarkable about the amount of effort and time and attention put into the technical aspects. Like, you know, brand new camera was FedEx from Japan at one point and it, it just, everyone wanted it to work. And it was really a lot of fun. You felt like you were part of something that was going to change the industry, maybe not in a huge way, but you know, at least pushed things forward. And it was, it was just great to see that. And we got a lot, a lot of support from Canon, and gave a lot of support to Canon around those cages. Okay. Uh, so obviously, you've adapted that to the DSLR side of things. So the newest kit on the block is the DSLR versions of those. Beyond just making something that was, um, you know, a cage and it allowed you to put rails on I and mean, all the stuff that you'd expect, it we really wanted it something to look unique and look kind of sexy and cool and just not be yet another sort of blocky thing that people stuck on there because they had to, not because they wanted to. 
and uh, I, think, I think people really like it. I mean, it, it definitely does all the things that it needs to do. It's it's a system that you know you can add pieces to it, and you know, there's a really cool little chassis piece that's on the back end, and it kind of creates this bracketing kind of shape that you know not only is it a is it a camera system, but I think it just has a certain vibe to it. You know, a certain yeah. kind of classy look. I like to think. The other thing is it's quite thin. All the all the support structures are all very thin. You don't feel like you know if you're putting this thing on a shoulder, you don't want this big metal box sticking in your ear. And uh, you know, so I think it's very good from that point of view. One of the main things, I, and um, what I was interested in, is the fact that you can. Uh, if you're using an EVF, it's a really nice the top. It's a really good solution to get top rails on top of a DSLR because without having to have this big bulky solid chunk of hewn um, aluminium um, all around your camera, and you still have access to everything, uh, yet get a point at the top to put your EVF on. Because if you if you, anyone who's dealt with putting anything on their hot shoe, uh, it's terrific for about a week until then your hot shoe starts to rattle off the camera and, uh, <laughs> you know, they're not really designed for all that sort of weight and or carry handles and stuff. Well, some now, are, but some uh, are. DSLRs are the most maddening love story there is because everyone loves them and we love them and, and we all want to love them so much more. And then, you know, something falls off the hot shoe or, you know, the sensor overheats in the middle of something or it, it just goes on and on and on. And it's, it's, uh, you know, it's like that, that girlfriend that, uh, you know, you want to love so much, but then she'll like start dating other guys in the middle of your relationship or something. Just, it's not quite coming together. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, as you said, we, we, we saw that and, you know, obviously we knew that the micro remote was coming down, uh, down the pike and we really felt, you know, one of the things that we learned from people like Shane Hurlbutt was that people love the idea of picking up this camera and just putting it in different scenarios, putting it on a shoulder rig, putting it on a tripod, putting it on a handheld unit. And, you know, Shane is a action oriented kind of guy. I mean, he's really sort of run and gun and he wants his focusing system to go on the camera with him. And so part of our idea about the top rails was not just, you know, EVF and additional mounting points, but we really thought about the micro remote that if we could yeah. provide a way to hook the base station and the motor and make those pieces small enough that it wasn't some big clunky box uh, and that you could, you know, take the battery and either put it on the rear of the cage or put it on as a counterbalance like we have on our shoulder mount systems or throw it in a backpack like we showed for our really compact handheld systems, that all that stuff could go with you regardless of what rig you ended up being on. And that to us was one of the main reasons that we wanted to make sure not only we included top rails into our cage system, but in fact, top rails is now becoming kind of a standard practice for outfitting these cameras. I guess it's sort of timely subject at the moment because there's a lot of sort of crap going on about it at the moment is how do you deal with like, you know, the Chinese knockoffs and people ripping off stuff and ripping off your patents? Do you actively go after that stuff or is it just like whack-a-mole where you just can't, you, you, you kill one and another one crops up? Is it, you know, are you, is it just like, say, la vie? Well, it's a little all the above. Um, I mean, certainly we invest a lot of time and effort in understanding what product to build. And we apply a certain amount of you know, creative thinking in terms of, well, it just doesn't – we want to have some passion behind it. We want to have some of our kind of personal mark on exactly what it is. So as I mentioned with the Ultra Cage, we felt like we wanted it to be really beautiful and to form fit the camera. And you know, I, I think 
however you feel about Red Rock products, it really has a very unique look out there. And that was, that was important to us. You know, was it super critical in terms of functionality? You know, I, we think it functions better, but, you know, we could have built a cage. You just went, you know, 90 degrees in each angle and, you know, people probably would have been okay with that. So it does take a lot of time and effort and money to develop products. So when someone comes along and, you know, buys your product and just knocks it off, it's pretty frustrating. Um, and it's frustrating when we hear from people, you know, some customers who don't quite understand what the cost is to not just build them, but to develop them and support them and enhance them going in the future. They say, well, how, you know, why would I buy your product? It's four times the price of this, you know, thing that I can get on eBay from China. Uh, so it is, it is a frustrating experience and we do go after them whenever and wherever uh, we can. Also knowing that the Chinese government, uh, or I don't know if it's the Chinese government, the culture, something over there seems to think it's perfectly fine to steal designs and knock them off. Um, but what we found is they don't really do it that well because they don't really understand the problem they're trying to solve. Yeah. So we had an experience recently where a customer came to us and essentially they lambasted us and they said, your product's terrible. You guys don't know what you're doing. The camera fell off and blew up. See where and, this is going. <laughs> and we, you know, we take that stuff seriously. I mean, it's really, it's, it's not only do we take it seriously as a customer service thing, but we believe in our products. And so it's kind of like someone coming up and calling your baby ugly. It's just like, wow, it's a personal affront and we want to know if in fact this is true. So we did a little investigating and what we found out was that the problem was a non red rock part. That's not my, that was causing these issues. And, you know, frankly, camera fell off and broke some stuff. And, you know, while we felt bad, um, you know, we demonstrated that that was definitely not, uh, it's it's not one was not one of our products, but nonetheless, uh, you know that's kind of the the risk that people take is how good of a knockoff artist are these guys, and you know are they really going to be there in the long term when you know something happens and they're they need to support their product. I, I just in that particular example, I don't think that that it was worth the pain and. Uh, anxiety that this particular filmmaker felt going through all that stuff and you saved you know maybe a couple hundred bucks yeah i just i'm i'm I'm, i keep talking i'm nursing this can of diet coke (laughs) i don't know if you know this but speaking of diet coke you know that they're they can't make a diet coke in a fountain version that contains aspartame so if you go fountain version versus post mix yeah what do you call that post mix? Yeah, or like the, the movies. flavoring juice and then the soda water, and they kind of come together in your cup, and <laughs> voila, it's Diet Coke, right? Yeah. Well, it turns out that aspartame is not stable enough to be a the syrup mixture for very long. Uh-huh. And I guess those things have long shelf life, so they can put aspartame in cans uh, or bottled drinks because those tend to have fairly quick turnover, but not in the the syrup or the fountain drinks. And so you end up drinking saccharin from the the fountain, and that is why, by the way, it is actually true that they taste different. You guys have, particularly, I guess, with Coke, you have the issue of corn syrup, and we get uh, cane sugar in our Coke. Like we is got, that true? We, we have like the Mexican or the Canadian Coke, and you have, uh, yeah, corn syrup, don't you? Well, you know what? That also explains why I've seen a tremendous surge in the number of, I, I guess it's Mexican Coke 
bottles. And it seems yeah. to be kind of almost almost like a, a connoisseur version. And I couldn't figure out why that is, but maybe that's why it is. It is the connoisseur Coke. It's the uh, cane sugar version <laughs> that they, they sneak across the border. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, so I, I don't know how we got off on that, but the, the future of Red Rock. So we are in the middle of, of, of rolling out our remote. You know, it's a... It's a one-channel, all-digital, remote-focused system. Obviously, wireless is a big part of that, but it's you know we think about it as so much more. So, I think that what you will see is, you know, our continued work there. Um, obviously, there are many uh, places for us to go in in terms of not only managing um, you know wireless focus, but you know how many channels we're going to work on, things like that. I mean, those are very logical places for us to go. And in fact, people are already asking us, can we do multiple channel? Can we do 3D? And, you know, our, our answer is we got to get the single channel version out there. We have to get everybody happy and, and satisfied and, you know, us first and, you know, customers uh, making sure they have a great experience. And then, you know, obviously we go from there. The, the industry as a whole, I think DSLR is here to stay. Uh, regardless of what kind of digital cinema camera is going to be out there, just simply because there is no high def, big chip camera in the you know now six hundred to two thousand dollar range, you know maybe three thousand for the you know the higher end ones, but you know geez a T four I for you know seven eight hundred bucks yeah that does the stuff it's doing is just unthinkable yeah uh, so I think that's always going to be there. And I think that that uh, audience is going to continue to need gear. It's probably going to need to be, you know, a little bit more value priced because you know maybe they are not even serious hobbyists, but maybe sort of weekend warrior filmmakers. They want to do a forty-eight hour film challenge, or you know, they want to do a better job of filming their kids growing up, or whatever. You know, it's becoming kind of the new, the new DSLR. Right, movie making is kind of your new digital snapshots, and. Uh, and I think we're going we're gonna to continue to play a really strong role uh, in that area as well. Uh, and then, you know, really a lot of the movement in the professional side of things is around these digital cinema cameras. Uh, you know, now we've got the Blackmagic camera coming out, which looks really intriguing to a lot of people. That's a uh, everyone, serious need of some ergonomic help. Yeah, I'm sort of – I'm still looking for someone to explain to me what their idea was in, in building that. And I don't mean that in any mean way. I'm just hey, like – Hey Look, guys, don't question. It's great. You know, it's fantastic that the camera companies don't have people like you working for them because they never seem to get the mounting or the onset solutions right. It's terrific. There's whole industries that are built around the fact that Red didn't put enough quarter twenties on the top of the Epic. You know, it's yeah, terrific. Well, bring it on. Bring it on. Bring on more stupid right? cameras. <laughs> bring on more cameras that uh, stu- uh, you know, more strangely designed cameras with uh, great image results, and people will want to use them. Yeah, although I guess, you know, with the, the Red, uh, you know, the, the moral of the story there is, you know, build support stuff. Just don't make it look too much like what Red has or yeah. you might get in trouble. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think, I think for whatever reason, and I, I think largely, in my opinion, for kind of marketing purposes, the next big battleground has kind of been staked out now is 4K. And, uh, you know, everyone's swinging at red and red swinging back. And, you know, you see just these amazing, amazing cameras coming out. Uh, you know, Blackmagic is a little bit sort of a, of a outlier because it's, it's not trying to play in the 4K. I mean, in fact, I'm not even sure what space it's playing in, to be honest. I mean, it's, <laughs> They're it's playing in their amazing, space. Yeah. They've kind, of, they've kind of, I mean, my hat's off to them, right? They sort yeah, of invented no, right. their own 
their own their own game, and they've decided that they're going to be champs in it. And boy, I'll tell you, there is no if it works in the way that it does. And my suspicion is, in a version two of that camera, they're going to address this, you know, tiny small chip. It's a micro four thirds, but they're not really using the whole thing, and you know, kind of freaks people out. When they come out with a version of that, that's going to be maybe APS-C, you know, maybe, maybe Super 35, somewhere in there. Yep. And it's going to be, you know, 500 bucks more, 1000 bucks more, whatever it is, even if it's $2,000 more. I mean, I think that's really going to cause people to stop and try to figure out what all this means. I mean, I, I, don't, I can't even imagine the implications of an incredibly good working for, let's say, you know, two, 3K camera for $3,000, it's got a good size chip, so you have nice wide-angle lenses. You can use your you know, PL mount or your Canon L-series lenses, and it records to you know, solid-state drives and does you know, ProRes and TNX HD and all this stuff. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm, it's so good, I'm almost not sure what to do about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it certainly suits a different sort of area of the industry, but uh, um, they're still going to sell a shitload of them, but it is definitely a camera designed by a post-production company or a post-production uh, equipment company. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, they, will, they will still have a, a wide amount of adoption. But, uh, yeah, as you say, it's, 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 a, it's a tricky one to work out. You know, what, what do you build bits to, 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 to go where? On the shoulder? It's kind of weird. and It's just a weird form factor, you know, and I, I, we'll figure something out and everybody else, I'm sure, will, will have some of their own takes on it. But uh, I didn't really think about that, that it was, in fact, a post-production house sort of building this form factor until now. And I guess it does make some sense because it kind of is really focused on the rear screen, you know, what's kind of going on behind the lens as opposed to what's happening when you're holding the camera or in front of it. Well, thank, thanks, Brian. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for popping in. Yeah, Jason, my pleasure. Thanks for having us. We'll catch you in maybe 2013. Yes, although I know you've been talking about going to Cinegear, and I highly recommend it. Cinegear is much mellower, and they have a lot more free alcohol. <laughs> See you there, too, then. Okay, Jason. Well, that's great. And as I... Also, I promised at the outset, I just wanted to give you um, a little bit more of the behind-the-scenes stuff from the uh, film Spider-Man. I, I, I definitely hope that we get a copy of that Red Rock Micro when it comes out of uh, beta. But yes, I, I spent a bunch of time with the guys at Sony, um, and we just wanted to... Uh, there's some really interesting stuff in terms of the epic workflow, and, well, really the stereo side uh, of The Amazing Spider-Man. The thing about a lens though is it's actually happening in the media recording area mm-hmm. of the lens, so there is actually no physical spatial position for it to sit in three space. Sure. Uh, I mean, you could argue that uh, you should have no lens flares, that even in 2D photography you shouldn't have lens flares. Um, and, uh, for example, if you were to look at uh, some filmmakers, uh, they, they seem to love their lens flares. This film really didn't have a lot in the way of uh, obtrusive lens flares that, you know, that you'd really notice. Um, when we did have them, we would make a conscious call, is this something we want to keep? Uh, is this something we want to leave the way it was captured, with all, you know, faults and all? Or is this something that we would want to remove? And of course, this film being about uh, Spider-Man and uh, a giant green lizard, um, both of whom do things that 
you can't do in the real world that you can't capture in the real world. There's a lot of synthetic photography in this movie as well, a lot of CG, all CG shots, and we needed to make sure that the synthetic photography, the you know the virtual photography, matched the look of the of the native photography. So even when we were talking about an all CG shot, the question of well, would that light source create a lens flare? If it did, what would that lens flare look like? And we were always balancing this creative question of what's a cool looking lens flare opposite what does a real lens flare look like? Let me ask you a slightly complicated question, but there is a point to it. Sure. <laughs> in a uh, stereo world, if I was making a documentary, I might increase the, the uh, interaxial just because I wanted to get more stereo effect out of a canyon, say. Mm-hmm. Well, flying through the buildings of New York is a lot like a canyon, but if I've got something close to camera, I'm going to ha- normally have a completely different kind of stereo solution for that because mm-hmm. I want the dimensionality. But that same dimensionality is going to fail in the distance shot. In the 3D animated world, if I was making a fully 3D animated film, I just get oh a magic stereo camera that gives me a different stereo solution mm-hmm. for foreground and background. Sure. I could say that you could do that too, but Spidey's going to have a web line going from the foreground to the background. So I'm kind of intrigued how you dealt with that without causing problems to the distance or without flattening the whole shot. Well, what's interesting is that usually in this film, when Spider-Man is in the foreground, you want to look at Spider-Man. You want to see what he's doing. And as a result, uh, for the most part, when Spider-Man is swinging through the canyons of New York, we didn't go and create complicated multi-camera rigs. We decided to play it very naturalistic, which is something that was important to the director. That Again, this feel like it was really photographed. And with a real camera rig, you can't do this multi-camera technique where you split out hmm. the effect anyway. So the the first question was like, well, what would this look like if we actually photographed it? And that, you know, certainly some of the camera moves that we do in the film are things that would be very difficult to impossible to do with a real Spider-Man and a real camera rig. Um, But by the same token, we always wanted to be grounded in this sort of reality. It always helped that we had uh, oftentimes stuntman reference for the shots. Even even in the cases where we were doing a full CG Spider-Man, there was oftentimes some reference of what the stuntman would look like. And we always had that grounding of, yeah, this is how it was photographed. So the point of that is that when it came to choosing the stereo settings, we always came back to, well, how would we shoot this if we really were shooting this with a real camera? There's a whole scene that takes place in the high school where um, the lizard and Spider-Man are fighting and they start to like crawl up on the ceiling. And that whole scene, there's like a, probably a 40-shot section of, of this battle that takes place in a synthetic hallway in the school. And every time we were setting the cameras, I would remind myself that we were bracketing it with real photography. And it was important that, that, that it all blend together and all feel like it was done by the same team. So we, I mean, even, even in those situations... You don't want to suddenly cut to a locked-off shot when you've got a moving camera just exactly. because it's an effect shot. Yeah. Exactly. It's always the telltale sign. Yeah. Now the grain changed or the camera got locked off. It's a visual effect shot. So we, we definitely wanted to play... You know, the, the whole point of this was make it feel like a real... Spider-Man experience, like Spider-Man's there, he's doing his thing, and that started from the director saying, we want to get a stuntman doing as many of these stunts as we could. I, I remember uh, one of the first days we did stunts on, on the film was a uh, location shoot in downtown L.A., and 
there was no rehearsal for this thing, so it was like I'm sitting there riding the, the controls, and, and I kind of knew we were following Spider-Man on this car. We were following the stuntman on this car, and the, uh, the uh, camera's mounted to the car, and we're just following him. And he starts running through the street, and he's being chased by cop cars, and he runs up behind this pickup truck, holds on the lift gate on the back and starts sliding and then does a backflip into the bed of the truck all while this is in motion. No rigs, nothing. The guy just did this. And I remember thinking this is why he wants stuntmen because it is just amazing what these people are capable of doing. And our challenge in creating the virtual Spider-Man was to make it feel as visceral and as real as the stunt guys did. Okay, well, one of the tools that I've heard was used on the production um, is Mystica, which is kind of an interesting tool because of its uh, stereo optical flow tools. Where did that fit in the pipe, and did that exist here, or where, where was that? Well, the, the Mystica tool set is one of the many tools that we use uh, for our plate alignment. Uh, in particular, um, over at Imageworks, um, they have their own tool set, which is based on Nuke and Ocula, and they've got a team of people that were doing plate preparation at Imageworks. Some of the other vendors, uh, what we would do for the, on the production side was we would run the plates through the Mystica correction tools, which were very good at aligning the plates, very good at matching the color. They have very strong tools mm -hmm. for uh, aligning and correcting the plates. Um, and then in the cases where we had maybe uh, they were a little harder to, to work on the Mystica, we would send those to uh, Reliance Media Works, which did sort of the more complicated alignment cases when, when Mystica wasn't quite able to, to handle those. So we had a, a wide variety of cases. We had the uh, – we even had you know, situations – and this happens on any production where there's a technical failure in one camera, for example, where you only get one eye or there's a genlock issue. They don't line up. Um, and you have to kind of go all the way back to well, let's convert this take. You, you obviously hope that the editors don't pick those takes, but you know sometimes they go, well, that's the performance we need. <laughs> and we want to thank the guys uh, for that. Okay, so Jace, we um, also have some gear that's audio gear actually this week, and uh, I guess in line with our road uh, kind of uh, your competition thing. But tell me, uh, there's a new Roland. Product, is that right? Yeah, I mean, you and I, I think, Mike, have got the Tascam, the DR100s, which are really cool. And what we liked about yep. them was that it was a bit more tactile and there's lots of buttons on them and there's almost a button for every function and nice big level knobs and XLRs and stuff. Um, but this sort of takes it on a next level. What we're all trying to avoid is the pain of the um, Zoom H4n. Popular as it is, it's a complete pain in the ass in its uh, user interface. It's just a shocker. Um, designed by Nazis, I think. And um, this uh, has actually got a touchscreen on the front so you can actually go through all your menus really nice big screen it's a big bulky it's quite bulky um, which I really actually quite like you can almost use it as a weapon if you needed to um, reasonably well built and it's got a really nice um, bright clear touch screen on the front so you can start going through all your menus and your setups and formatting cards and everything all through all through touch uh, but the other thing I really like about it is right on the front two big level knobs the Tascam one is quite nice, but it has that sort of interesting thing where it has like a knob within a knob, like the inside one is left and the outside one is right. And when you touch, pull, you know, it's designed to be 
to work together, you know, like if you're doing like a stere- more of a stereo recording where if everything, yeah, presuming that you're more interested in left or right together than left or right separately. And often you're not. Sometimes more um, in the, um, you know, filming world, you actually want to have, you've got a boom mic on a stand yep. catching something going into one side and then a wireless mic on the other or two people's wireless mics going in there and one person, you know, and you want to you want to have really uh, quick access to each level and you don't want to be able to do it. It's burrowing through menus. You don't want to be able to start clicking a button up, down, click, 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 down, up, up with a, with a little, you know, thumb wheel. You want to be able to just, you know, grab a knob and, and turn it. So I really like this. Two big, simple left and right knobs, but it will actually record up to about six channels, like three stereo uh, streams simultaneously, which is quite impressive. And unlike the uh, the Tascam, although the Zoom will do it, uh, it has, you can just plug it into USB and use it as a USB interface. So you could just literally use it for podcasting like this now with a good mic. In that a that I think room. is a huge, yeah, that is actually a huge um, part of this. Up until that point, I was like, why are we bothering to cover this? Or not that we were bothering, but it was like, isn't this sort of what we've seen before? Um, but then when you take that extra aspect of being able to plug it in between, uh, you know, a mic and a, and a laptop. Yeah. Well, I think my thing and why I go on about it, I suppose, is the fact is sound is fucking hard. Sound is hard stuff. Yep. You know, I've been doing, you know, visual and stuff for a long time, and uh, sound. You know, you you kind of know what you're doing. Sound is, you know, sound is not that hard if you're just doing sound, but sound is freaking hard if you're trying to do sound and vision together, and or trying to do five things and remember. Yep. You've know, got two cameras, and you know, if you're trying to do it all, and sometimes you have to. Um, then you just want something that's going to make it easier. And if something, you know, if you not have to sort of bust your brain open by trying to work out a, a Zoom H4N menu system or trying to remember as you delicate in the middle of an interview, you just want to turn down the guy on the left. Now, a guy over there, is he the, the inner knob or he's the outer one? And which <laughs> if I turn it, you know, you know, you just want to be able to, you know, make make things very quick and easy to get to and um anything that makes something easier in the sound world is just going to be one less um one less little stressful moment in the middle of an interview where you don't want to sort of fuck it up and turn the wrong person down or up and um yeah or be recording on the external mics when you think you should be on the inter you know on the xlrs or you know anyway i think it's that that's why i suppose if there's if there's something that makes things um easier then i'm I'm happy to promote it and get it out there because uh sound is hard if you can get a freaking professional okay i have a piece of gear that's not uh audio related but it's gopro related um the guys at at light illusion um are really good and i've used their stuff before but i've used gopros as witness cameras a lot where we've just stuck it over the side like i've done things where we've just you know been shooting and i said well let's just stick a GoPro over here and just let it run for like for forever and we'll just grab stuff later which yeah. kind of works well for that sort of you know that sort of uh, you cut to a almost surveillance camera view of the whole set and then it cuts back in again you only need it for a few seconds yeah. often times but you've run the bloody bugger for several hours well um, there's a product from the light uh, illusion guys called GoPro fuse and it's basically a logging tool it's a logging and transcoding tool for the GoPro and so you run it up on your Mac, for example, and then it'll open up a QuickTime window, whatever, and you can go through and transcode for codecs such as DNX HD, but also um, Apple ProRes 444, 
but at the same time as doing this, it'll uh, log stuff and that'll actually output a, you know, the Excel file. What's the Excel format? It's um, dot oh. whatever it is, uh, CVX or CVS, I think it is. Um, but anyway, so you you logging stuff and it only transcodes the stuff that you log, which means you can pull up the stuff, run through it really quickly, mark all the bits that you want, and then um, hit go and it'll uh, run out and transcode them. I mm-hmm. let me just check on the price. Sorry, it's impressive. There is a down, uh, a demo you can download. It looks yeah, like there's a download. Yeah, Steve at, at Light Illusions is a really uh, good guy, and um, yeah, it's just a great idea. It's it's look, it may seem dumb and simple. Uh, you might say, well, couldn't I do that another way? Well, yeah, obviously you could. You could just transcode all your material, and I know that, but that's not the point. A CSV file. It is a CSV file. So um, the idea of this pounds. is that yeah. If you are somebody that's in that world where yeah. you're just are producing a lot more stuff than you want, and you know there are lots of occasions with GoPros, we'll put it on the outside of a car and drive it off, and we really only want a few shots from it. Um, it's not you know necessary to transcode all that stuff and tie up, not just tie up the machine doing it, but just type all my hard drives with tons and hours of transcoded stuff to then wade through. Yeah. Just log it beforehand, and uh, you know you probably still got the original GoPro file. You need to go back to it. But uh, that'll be what you need for editing and stuff. They're so getting far to... more usable as a camera, you know, with the Technicolor oh, yeah. profiles and the, the the Hero 2 having much better dynamic range and the remotes being able to make things easier to control them and set, the, you know, set up the, the functions. So, yeah, I, you know, I go a bit hot and cold on the old GoPro, but... Um, it, it, it is, it's getting, it's getting um, you know, a far more usable tool, especially with stuff like this. Yeah, I must admit, I liked Light Illusion. I came to them because they produce uh, virtually a lot for an ICC profile. In other words, you can't load in Photoshop a lot, but you can convert LUTs into ICC profiles so that you can take them into Photoshop, which is where I came across these guys. And Steve, always been really responsive and, uh, yeah, good good people. Um. Okay, and there's one other thing that I see on the show notes that you put down, which is a microphone. What's the deal there? Is <laughs> this that- is not. This is not. I've just been testing out a bunch of GoPros of uh, Rode stuff, so you know, I came across this one, which is not entirely new, but I think it's very, very cool. And particularly, as I say, I've been doing a bit of uh, doco-y, soundy work thing. But the pin mic is really clever. As I say, I was, these guys are really, you know, Rode are kind of really kind of innovating and doing some clever stuff. Pin mic is a lav mic where, I mean, you, you come across this all the time, Mike. You do a lot of interviews where you've got the, you can always find a place to put the microphone, but you, you always see it and you've got the cable coming out and where do you tuck the cable under and stuff. So the pin mic's really quite clever in that it actually has very, very fine, really not going to ruin clothes that uh, that much. <laughs> um um, essentially it goes through the fabric so the cable is always hidden behind the jacket and all you're left with on the other side is just the little tiny little windshield you know, like about sort of five mil wide little the standard kind of lav windshield really um, and it's uh, actually goes the contacts for the mic go through the fabric and all basically the, the, the other half of that and the cable etc is all on the other side of the clothing so it's a really nice way of being able to hide a mic a lot easier and it doesn't necessarily pull off as easy um because it's you know it's, it's almost a part of the a part of what the person's wearing um and sounds great so and they just you know their packaging is awesome i was just even tweeting about it last week when i got them to look at and i think man it all comes in this little if it was zenheiser or whatever be here's your freaking cardboard box here's your really expensive mic boom you know enjoy 
but it comes in a really nice kind of like a little pelican case and there's a little place for everything it's all foam padded and you know nice little snap case and yeah so you don't just get your mic and you get you know you get something to actually use it on the road with having to then find out where i'm going to store this stuff so a clever idea clever design really nice packaging i have not been paid for this announcement <laughs> well i'd happily be be borrowing it from you if you, yeah, if you yeah, have it because right. I, I do this all little, little bloody time so I'm really fascinated by this actually oh faffing around with mics you know as you know it's quite complete pain in the ass really where you put mics yeah. it's nice to be able to sort of boom people and have that um, have that have a nice uh, shotgun out of shot but sometimes a lav is is the only way to go and uh, I, I'd really actually wouldn't like to try and use one of these because I actually do a lot of interviews and stuff like this yeah would um, be for you. how much are they uh, 250 bucks I think oh, for brilliant. yeah for the mic you probably need a little adapter to depend on that's the other thing they're adaptable they have a little um, mic on adapters I think at the end whether you're going to go to XLR or whether you're going to go to Sennheiser or uh, yeah, whatever, Sennheiser. or Sony whatever depending on what your your wireless pack is or whether you're going to go straight wired in so those things are only a couple of, a couple of bucks 20 bucks or so depending on, on which way you're going to go but yes there's an adapter to go with whatever your use is so yeah hmm. good boy good guys excellent Alright, um, well we need to go okay. uh, Just, I think We have pretty much uh, should Maybe use uh, Road as our This week's Twitter feed um, So what, are, what are, They do have, a, I'm sure I've seen their Twitter feed Jace, Road? Uh, Road Mics, R-O-D-E-M-I-C-S uh, Road Mics And uh, because they'll be sort of uh, They'll be tweeting about the competition as it goes and, and you know, talking about deadlines And stuff, so yeah Bit of a, a bit of a a road biased show today, but uh, you know, I think it's something worth worth getting behind. Absolutely, oh, it's freaking awesome. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> well, that's it for this week. Um, thanks so much for being with us. And uh, Jace, enjoy your time overseas. Thank you. Enjoy your and, whatever you're going to do. Uh, exactly. And I will <laughs> talk to you next time. See you guys. See you guys. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.